Amen. Psalm chapter 8 verse 5 tells us that God made man a little lower than the angels. Comedian Will Rogers added, and he's been getting a little lower ever since. And that's the theme of the first 11 chapters in Genesis. The Garden of Eden was the scene of the first Adam bomb. That's right. Adam and Eve bombed. They sinned. And the fallout of their sin poisoned the entire human race. The contamination was immediately visible in the form of a birth defect. Adam and Eve's kids were born as self-centered as their parents had become. The first couple sees this problem first in their son's jealousy and self-righteousness. Remember, Cain murdered his brother Abel. And from there, the Adams family goes from bad to worse. Just read Genesis chapters 3 through 6, and awful events take place. Humans convert with demons. Men are given over to rebellion and deviance and perversion. It gets so bad, God floods out humanity and starts afresh. Noah's family exits the ark, told to multiply and fill the earth. But rather than scout her out, the people huddle up. At the Tower of Babel, led by a rebel named Nimrod, all the human tribes come together to defy the Lord. You know, it's quite amazing. After every sinful episode in the human drama, rather than write us off, God responds with a covenant. He reaches out in love and he offers us terms for a new and better relationship with him. God's goal is to redeem mankind. To make us new and better people, not just return us to our original innocence. And this is why God has allowed sin and evil in the world. God prefers a people who fall and can't get up, then get lifted up by God, to a people who've never fallen and think that if they did, they could rise up on their own. Even after the flood, God made a covenant with Noah. God judged man's evil. Then he hung up his war bow in the clouds. The rainbow is a sign of God's mercy, of his intent to love us, not judge us. He promised to never judge the earth with water again. But the people refused to trust God. A fallen world is full of fearful and frightful enemies. And Nimrod played on the people's fears. You know, the question we all face is, will we trust God? Or fend for ourselves in a scary world. Nimrod convinced the world to look out for itself and to trust in him. They built a water-resistant tower in the desert. Nimrod didn't trust the promise of the rainbow. He made God out to be the bad guy. He was the savior, according to him. Nimrod waged war against God. And his waterproof tower doubled as an observatory... He consulted the stars and became the first astrologer. Nimrod coaxed man to worship the creation, not the creator. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 races through human history. The first 11 chapters cover a period of over 2,000 years, whereas the last 39 chapters of Genesis span only 245 years. 
For at the end of chapter 11, Genesis puts on the brakes. God crashes Nimrod's party. He alters the monotongue of mankind and confuses the languages. God forces the human family to finally separate and scatter. In keeping with our NASCAR analogy, after the Tower of Babel, God issued a caution flag and he slowed the pace. In Genesis chapters 1 through 11, God worked with mankind as a whole, but with little success. It ended with a worldwide revolt. Satan chose a man, Nimrod, and a place, Babel, and a means called fear. God had to bust up the mutiny. But how does God respond to our sin? It's always with a covenant. God never gives up on a relationship with us. But this time, he changes his strategy. For beginning in Genesis 12, God no longer works with humanity in mass. Instead, he picks one family through which he's going to install covenants so that he can redeem mankind. Beginning in chapter 12 of Genesis, God chooses a man, Abram, and a place named Canaan and a means called faith. And the rest of the Bible is the story of the salvation that God works through the Hebrews, the family of Abram. Which brings us to our text, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, there's some fanciful Jewish legends that paint Abram as godly from birth. One story has him expressing his faith at 10 days old. That's quite a baby. The truth is, Abram began as a Babylonian idol worshiper until the day that God spoke to him. Suddenly, he had to choose. The Lord said to Abram, would Abram believe that God is God or trust in his own wisdom? Well, Abram trusted God. From that time onward, he believed in God, not always perfectly, but time after time, he went against the grain of his skeptical culture, and he believed in the promises of God. Genesis chapter 11, verse 28 says that Abram came from Ur of the Chaldees. The Babylonian city of Ur was one of the wealthiest and most sophisticated cities of the ancient world. Ur was a land of luxury. Bathtubs were first used in Ur. It was the hot tub capital of the Fertile Crescent. Well, while living in Ur, Abram married a her, a gal named Sarai. Her name means contentious, which proves in my mind that marriages in those days had to have been arranged. What man in his right mind willingly weds miscontentious? But the Lord spoke to Abram. Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. One day, Abram comes home from work and he says to Sarah, Baby, pack up. We're moving. And she gets so excited. You got a raise. Uptown Ur, here we come. We're living a swimming tennis, she probably thought. Sarah was already thinking new furniture. But then she asked, honey, where are we moving? She wasn't ready for Abram's answer. 
He told her, Sarai, God told me to move. He just didn't tell me where. Recall the meaning of her name? Contentious? Trust me, a heated discussion must have followed. Well, Abram's initial foray in faith was more like a stumble than it was a step. God said, get out of your father's house. Instead, Abram let his father and nephew Lot tag along. Abram was also told to go to a land that God would show him. On his first attempt, he didn't make it that far. Abram moved 600 miles west of Ur, but stopped 400 miles short of Canaan. In other words, he followed God halfway. And this sometimes happens to us. We make a move toward God, but we pull up short of all he's asking. We hold on to elements of the old life rather than shake free. You know, some people have one foot in the world and one foot with God. They have too much of the world to enjoy God and too much of God to be happy in the world. Donald Barnhouse put it this way. They have enough Christianity to be miserable in a nightclub, but not enough to be happy in a prayer meeting. Rather than relocate to a new land, some people only move upstream. And a partial follower of Jesus is a miserable man, a miserable woman. Abram's compromise landed him in Haran, which means parched. And when we make concessions, when we dilute our commitment to Jesus... We become spiritually dry. Our soul becomes parched. If you're spiritually dehydrated and thirsty for living water, perhaps the problem is you've been following God halfway. Abram didn't fully follow God until his father died. Terah had held him back. And I wonder what's the Terah in your life? What needs to die for you to become fully devoted to Jesus? Often faith begins with a funeral. But God also made another promise in his covenant to Abram. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. The name Abram means father. But this was an embarrassment to Abram. He was 75 years old now and childless. And every time Abram met someone new, he was asked about his kids. His name invited the question, father. An old father had to say he didn't have any kids. Yet here God promises Abram descendants. You know, he can't sire a nation without an offspring. So in essence, God is promising Abram that he would have a child. And God makes Abram a third promise. He says, I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Ultimately, the blessing God promises to bring through Abram is our salvation. The Gospels make this clear. Jesus was born of Abram's lineage. All the blessings we have in Christ come through Abram. It's interesting. Nimrod had said, let us make a name for ourselves. But He went about it the wrong way. He rebelled against God. He struck out on his own. Abram, on the other hand, choose to live by faith and follow God even until the, into the unknown. And as a consequence, God promised to make his name great. At first glance, you might miss the importance of God's covenant with Abram. It's disarmingly simple. 
Yet Genesis chapters 12 verses 1 and 2 is one of the most strategic passages in the Bible. From time to eternity, history turns on this deal. God struck with Abram, the Abrahamic covenant. Notice again the threefold covenant God makes with Abram. A chunk of land, a great nation, and an ultimate blessing. Here's the condensed version. Three simple words. Land, nation, blessing. An even easier way to remember it. Sod, seed, and salvation. And I hate to belabor the point, but the significance of this covenant can't be overshadowed. The Abrahamic covenant is the bedrock of the Bible. In a sense, the rest of the book, Genesis 12 to Revelation 22, fills in the details of this threefold promise. The rest of your Bible is all about the land God gives them, the nation that lives there, and the blessing that comes through Abram's lineage. Grasp these three promises, and you'll understand the Bible. And notice what else God promises Abram and his offspring in verse 3. God takes an oath. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a promise to make to a family. And not only does Scripture bear out this promise, so does secular history. Nations have prospered and have crumbled based on how they treated Abram's family. Egypt declined in power after its enslavement of the Hebrews. After Babylon sacked Jerusalem, they were conquered by Persia. Greek culture began its steady decline when Antiochus destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Rome persecuted the church and were overrun by the barbarians. The medieval church sunk deep into into the dark ages when they assumed that it was their duty to punish the Jews. Jewish inquisitions ended Spain's greatness. Hitler's attempt to exterminate the Jews sealed Germany's defeat. Certainly one reason for the sudden fall of the Soviet Union was its cruel treatment of Jews and its opposition to the state of Israel. And we could go on and on. And I believe there's no doubt that God continues to shed His grace on the United States of America because we've remained staunch allies of Israel. We ever pull that support, mark it down. Judgment on our nation will be close behind. God promised to bless those that blessed Abram and curse those who cursed him. In Genesis 13, verse 14, God wants to give Abram a deeper appreciation of his promise. God wants to make it real and tangible. And so he tells him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. Farther than the eye can see, Abram. This is the land that God has promised you. And notice the duration of the promise. All the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. Forever is a long lease. This means that even today and into the future, it doesn't matter what the U.S. or the EU or the U.N. or the G8 or OPEC has to say about the borders of Israel. The land that God gave to Abram belongs to the Jews 
not the Arabs. God reiterates this to Abram in verse 16. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Later in Genesis 15, God will take Abram out under a night sky, away from the city's ambient lights. I guess it was before the city's ambient lights. He tells Abram his descendants will be as the stars in the sky. Here he tells them they'll be as the particles of dust on the earth. A childless 75-year-old geezer is being promised that his family is going to be as innumerable as the dust particles on earth and as the celestial bodies in the heavens. What a promise God is making. And then I love what God tells Abram in verse 17. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Abram, get out there, man, and pound the ground. God wants him to experience firsthand his blessing. And this verse is important, especially for Christians who try to spiritualize these promises and say that God's promise of the land was just metaphorical. Oh, Abram's exploits are figurative of our spiritual journey. You know, walking the land is just analogous for growing spiritually. That's what some people say. I'm sure there's some spiritual parallels between Abram's journey and the Christian life, but never try to spiritualize away God's promises. God told Abram to put feet in the dirt and to walk where he had promised. The land grant of the Abrahamic covenant is a literal parcel. God gave Abram a specific chunk of dirt, a clod of sod. Hey, some sod from God. This is why the Bible unfolds in Canaan rather than Beijing or Paris or Atlanta. The Abrahamic covenant involves an actual parcel of land, real land to real people. And the heirs of this covenant are not the spiritual children of Abram. They are the real DNA-proven bloodline descendants of Abram. God has literal promises on the books that have to do with literal land and with literal people. In fact, God even provided Abram literal borders. In Genesis 15 verse 18, God tells him, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt, that is the Nile, to the great river, the river Euphrates. You know, today's hot topic in Israeli-Palestinian negotiations has to do with the Israeli settlements on the West Bank. Does Israel own the West Bank of the Jordan River, the land that the Bible calls Judea and Samaria? Well, God says that Israel not only owns the west bank of the Jordan River, but all the land all the way to the west bank of the Euphrates River. That not only includes the disputed territories, the west bank and Gaza and the Golan, but a lion's share of Egypt and the Sinai and Lebanon and Jordan and Saudi Arabia and Syria and Iraq and Kuwait. Arabs living in Egypt are living in denial. Denial. But the Bible's clear. The land God promised Abram belongs to Israel. Today's Israel consists of 8,000 square miles, a slither of land the size of New Jersey. But one day, I believe when Jesus returns and fulfills all of God's promises, 
Israel will possess 300,000 square miles of actual territory. As God promises in Genesis 13, verse 15, this is the land that God gave to the heirs of Abraham forever. But who was Abram's heir? Well, two episodes from his life clear up any confusion. In Genesis 15, it had been a decade since God promised Abram descendants. He's 85 years old now, and he's starting to worry. It seems there's an expiration date on childbearing. Fertility is not forever. Abram suggests that God should take, make his servant, a man named Eleazar, his heir apparent. But that's not God's plan. For in chapter 15, verse 4, we're told, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one, you shall, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Abraham has been on Social Security now for 20 years. He's no spring chicken. Yet God is going to solve his problem, the problem of an heir, not with adoption, not with in vitro, not with surrogate parents, Even before the days of Viagra and Cialis, the old boy Abraham will sire a son from his own body. And notice Genesis 15 verse 6. Here's a key verse in our Bible. It says of Abraham, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. This is an oft-quoted verse. It appears four times in the New Testament, in Romans 4, verse 3, in Romans 4, verse 22, in Galatians 3, verse 6, and in James chapter 2, verse 23. This is the verse the Apostle Paul uses to prove that we obtain and maintain a right standing with God, not because of what we do or not do, but because of our faith in God's promises. All his blessings are received by faith alone. And Abram believed God, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. That's how we're saved as well. Mark Twain once quipped, heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. (laughs) I agree. God pours out his blessing, not on folks who think they deserve it, but on those who trust in his grace. And what happens next is one of the most interesting and monumental events In all of the scripture. Abram believes God's promise. But his faith isn't perfect. He asks God for some corroboration. In sense he wants God's signature on the covenant. And God signs all his covenants in blood. God responds in chapter 15 verse 9. Bring me a three year old heifer a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. What in the world is going on? Is God launching a petting zoo? Well, then Abram brought all these to him and cut them in two, down the middle, cross sections, and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. Now, this is how the ancients signed their contracts. You've heard the expression, cut a deal? Well, they literally cut a deal. 
they would slaughter a series of animals. Abraham cut them in cross sections from head to toe. And then he arranged the animal halves into a quarter. The more important the covenant, the more animals it took. Thus, this long list of animals here. Now you think a house closing is a hassle. Imagine signing this type of a covenant. After the animals were sacrificed, the two parties entering the covenant would meet in the middle and they would walk arm in arm between the animal halves as a commitment to their part in the transaction. They would walk between the same animal in essence, thus becoming one in their agreement. Well, Abram got his knife out and he went to work. And after slicing meat all day, he sat down to wait on God. Understand, Abraham expected God to literally walk with him through the animal halves. Abram waited all day, deep into the evening. He wore himself out, shooing away the hungry vultures, waiting on God to appear. Well, verse 12 tells us, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Abram had a nightmare. In his nightmare, God revealed to him the future of his descendants. Their 400 years of bondage. Their exodus from Egypt. How God would use them to judge the evil Amorites once they returned to the land. Then what happens next astonishes me every time I read. Chapter 15, verse 17 of Genesis. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. Again, according to ancient custom, a covenant was signed when both partners joined arms and walked together through the animal carcasses In essence, they were both saying that if they didn't fulfill their end of the deal, they would be dead meat. Well, Abram was expecting God to literally appear and join arms with him. And the two of them would walk together down the corridor of blood. But that's not what happened. God appeared while Abram slept. He came in the form of a spurning torch and a smoking censer. Notice smoke and fire. Later, God will guide Israel by the same means, a cloud by day and a fire by night. Here's what happened. God walked through the animal parts without Abram, all by himself. Perhaps Abram woke up just in time to see God walking through the carcasses. Abram awoke, he looked on, and he believed. And in doing it this way, God was establishing a unilateral covenant. It was totally one-sided. This was not man's part and God's part. It was all God. God took sole responsibility to complete his promises. All God expected from Abram was to rest and to look on in faith. And here's the lesson for us. Salvation is not a tag team effort. It's not up to us to meet God halfway. The blessing of God is not received by God doing half the work and the recipient doing the other half of the work. In our covenant of salvation, God does all the work. 
He takes sole responsibility for earning the blessing. All we're required to do is to wake up, look on, and believe. You would have hoped the signing of this covenant might have been enough to steady Abram's wobbly faith, but not so. God uses Abram as an example of faith, but his example isn't perfect faith. There's no such thing. And in Genesis chapter 16, Abram and Sarai wobble together. Sarah is at least 75 years old now. She's been taking mega doses of fertility medication for years, I suppose. But it just ain't happening. And so she concocts a plan. Sarah has a maid named Hagar. Maybe Hagar can bear a child in Sarah's place. An attempt at surrogate motherhood. Abram goes looking, or goes, he actually goes along with Sarai's scheme. Hagar enters Abram's tent, a maid, and comes out a mom. She has a boy. Finally, Father Abraham has a few baby photos for his iPhone. His son's name is Ishmael. And yet, sadly, the birth of Ishmael teaches Abram a painful lesson. Almost immediately, the plan backfires. Abram learns firsthand the agonizing truth that a sinful plan never produces godly results. We're told in chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, when Sarai saw that Hagar had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. Old contentious is now acting to part. She blames Abram for what was her idea in the first place. The baby is is barely born. Isn't even born, in fact, when a war erupts. Hagar is haughty. Sarai is jealous. And poor Abram is caught between two feuding females. It's interesting. In the Middle East today, the relationships between nations is still victimized by this ancient sibling rivalry. Ishmael is the father of the Arabs, and Isaac is the father of the Jews. And both are still at each other's throat 2,000 years later. Actually, 4,000 years later. The current hostilities between Jew and Arab are the result of Abram's lack of faith. Always remember, try to do God's will your way, and you'll make a mess. Trust God to do His work His way In his time. Along the heels of Abram's failure, God prepares him for the miracle birth. The Abrahamic covenant is so significant that God attaches to it a symbol. In Genesis 17, God instructs Abram and his heirs to be circumcised. Imagine a man, 99 years old, having a surgical procedure on his privy member. That's some rough stuff. It reminds me of the two trees in Israel, the juniper and the eucalyptus, both named after Jewish circumcision, the juniper and the eucalyptus. It's just a joke. But what this symbol accentuated was the fact that the Abrahamic covenant was passed down reproductively. The land and nation and blessing was intended for Abram's natural heirs. 
It's poetic justice, really, that God places the symbol of the covenant on the fountain of reproduction. In Genesis 17, the two waiting parents receive new names. Abram is 99 years old and freshly circumcised. No doubt that alone qualified him as a man of faith. And because of his faith, God gave him a new name, Abraham, which means the father of many nations. He has a child. And now he goes from father to father of many nations. He goes from father to big daddy. How about that? And God changes Sarah's name as well from Sarah, which means contentious, to Sarah or princess. And when God reaffirms his promise to give the 90-year-old Sarah a son, we're told Abraham, the great man of faith, fell on his face and laughed. And I'm sure many of us would have done the same. Imagine a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman expecting a child. Abraham is supposed to become a dad after he's been on Social Security for 45 years. Imagine Sarah filing her delivery with Medicare. How can it be possible? Thus, Abraham belly laughed. Actually, when God mentions Abraham having a son, he shouts out, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Hagar's boy was his son, or so he thought. But God's reply has profound theological and political ramifications even to this day. In chapter 17, verse 19 of Genesis, God corrects Abraham. He says, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants forever. This is the underlying squabble in today's Arab-Israeli conflict. Mohammed was a shepherd merchant who became disillusioned with life in the Arabian city of Mecca. He wandered one day into a cave outside of town, a cave up in the mountains. There he had a series of erroneous Visions, demon-inspired visions that denied the Christian God and his triune nature of father, son, and spirit. Muhammad claimed the only way to please Allah was to surrender to him, Muhammad, personally. Muhammad was a pretend prophet who needed religious cooperation for his visions, and so he claimed a connection to Abraham through his son Ishmael. In fact, in the Quran, Muhammad does a rewrite In at least 16 passages, the Bible refers to the God of the land and covenant as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the Quran, written 2,000 years later, refers to Allah as the God of Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac. Muhammad exalted Ishmael, father of the Arabs, over Isaac, father of the Jews. The Quran lies and says that Ishmael was the son who had the miraculous birth. According to Muhammad, Ishmael was offered by Abraham on the top of Mount Moriah. Also, it was Abraham and Ishmael who built the Muslim temple in Mecca, supposedly. The Quran steals the covenant from Isaac and bestows it on Ishmael. 
Muhammad claimed that Ishmael was the keeper of the true faith and passed it down to him, while Isaac strayed and his descendants, the Jews, lost God's inheritance. The Bible teaches us that the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant is Jesus, while Islam sinfully asserts that the blessing of Abraham pointed to Muhammad. This is a blasphemy of biblical truth. Read through Genesis and the covenant God makes with Abraham in chapters 12, 13, 15, 17, and 22 get repeated to Abraham's son Isaac in chapter 26 and then to his grandson Jacob in chapters 28 and 35. Certainly not everything the state of Israel does is righteous. And the Arabs aren't always wrong. In fact, God promised to bless and multiply both Jews and Arabs. But the covenant God made with Abraham, the land, nation, and blessing belongs to the descendants of Isaac, not Ishmael. Abraham might have laughed at first, but today it's no longer a laughing matter. And not only did Abraham laugh at God's promise, so did Sarah. In Genesis 18, angelic messengers show up at their tent to reaffirm God's promise of a son. Sarah eavesdrop in on the conversation. In verse 12, we're told Sarah laughed within herself. That's when the angel answered her, Is anything too hard for the Lord? And of course, there's not. The proof is in Genesis 21, verse 2. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time. Isaac. The miracle child was born. Did you hear about the cool video game that Abraham had running on his laptop? Well, Isaac was checking it out when a concerned look came over his boy's face. Dad, don't you think your computer lacks the memory that it needs for all these games you're playing? I love how Abraham replied. He said, son, God will provide the ram. Which brings us to the ultimate test of Abraham's faith. Genesis chapter 22. In verse 2, God tells Abraham, Take now your son, your only son Isaac. Notice, God doesn't even recognize Ishmael. To God, Isaac alone was the promised heir. He tells Abraham to take Isaac and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Imagine raising a knife with the intent of slitting the throat of your own son. And on top of that, Isaac was the heir of God's promise. Abraham had waited 25 years for his birth. Now he's supposed to sacrifice him back to God? As an insight into Abraham's thinking, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19 comments on this. It says that God, he, he, he concluded that Abraham had thought it over, and this was Abraham's conclusion, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. In other words, Abraham believed that if he sacrificed Isaac as God told him, God would resurrect him. 
Hebrews 11 tells us that it was a test of faith for Abraham and a picture for us, a figurative picture. Father Abraham traveled to Mount Moriah to offer his only son Isaac, while 2,000 years later, God the Father made the same journey to offer his only son Jesus on the very same mountain, Mount Moriah. Moriah was one of the hills of Jerusalem. And in Abraham's day, there was a settlement about halfway up the mountain. This means that Abraham probably climbed above that settlement to the top of the hill. This was the place that was later called Calvary or Golgotha, the exact spot where Jesus was crucified. Notice, too, a few details in this story. Abraham took wood for the sacrifice and laid it on Isaac. Jesus, too, carried a wooden cross up that hill. Two men traveled with Abraham to offer Isaac. And there were two thieves on the cross alongside Jesus when he was sacrificed. On top of Mount Moriah, God stopped Abraham from laying the knife to his son's throat. Abraham's willingness passed the test. And immediately, a voice spoke from the heavens. It pointed to a ram stuck in the thicket. God provided the sacrifice that day as he did 2,000 years later when he offered his son, Jesus, the Lamb of God. Jesus is the sinless sacrifice that blots out the sin of the world. Then the voice that spoke on top of Mount Moriah talked to Abraham again. In Genesis 22, verse 18, he said, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And this is interesting. It's so important. For in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul is going to quote Genesis 22, verse 18, and he's going to make a big deal out of the word seed. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Paul is emphatic. It reads seed, singular, not seeds, plural. And thus the apostle Paul uses that distinction to prove that the covenant God made with Abraham ultimately pointed to one person, one seed. That is Jesus, not just the Jews or the seeds. This is why the Abrahamic covenant is so vital to us. It not only outlines God's future dealings on the earth, but it clarifies the root of our salvation, the seed through which the promise came, Jesus Christ. You know, the life of Abraham is an epic story. Abram starts out an idol-worshiping Babylonian and ends up God's big daddy, the father of true, saving faith for all men. This man, Abraham, holds a fascinating distinction in Scripture. Three times he's referred to as the friend of God. That speaks volumes. It's interesting, Abraham never permanently occupied any of the land God promised him. Rather, he roamed in tents his whole life, looking to God himself. Hebrews 11 verse 10 says of Abraham, He waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham was given so much on earth since he needed so little. His eyes were on a bigger prize. When you walk by faith, you're not home until you get to heaven. May we follow Abraham's footsteps. See, here's what we're learning. 
All God's covenants, this one too, is initiated by grace, it's signed by blood, and it's entered into by faith. May we also follow in the footsteps of faith. Father, thank you.